look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Welcome to another edition of More Than Money on um, 770 CHQR. You're here with Dave and Andrew today. No Faisal. He's away, so uh, it ought to be a heck of a good show. Thanks for joining me today, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks again, Dave. <laughs> All right. Uh, I love taking shots at him when he's not here to defend himself, as <laughs> it, you know. It's very easy. <laughs> We've it's, got not, a, it's not hard in Cinco de Mayo to boot, so it's all good. I didn't get my invite to your party yet, by the way. Is uh, that well, intentional? Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> I won't take any offense to that. I probably should. But uh, today's show is pretty good. We're going to learn how, to, um, how an expanded CPP could actually cost Canada. Interesting conversation. Does using an accountant for your taxes really protect you from audits and mistakes? You might be surprised at the answer to that. And then we're going to talk about what does a transition to retirement really look like in reality. We talk about it in theory a lot, but we're going to hear from um, a financial, a former Financial Post columnist, author, and the founder of the Financial Independence Hub, um, a regular recurring guest of ours, Jonathan Chevro. We're going to talk about his experience as he's moving through this process of retirement himself. Um, Andrew, lots to talk about this week, I suppose. There was, um, I know that what caught your interest was an interesting article. I think there was some research uh, out by... Uh, TD and looking at retirement, but from a singles perspective, and there's actually some very uh, stark differences in terms of what an ex, uh, the experience for a single person going through retirement and the planning requirements for a single person going through retirement versus a couple. You want to you yeah. sort of want to touch on what uh, what caught your interest? Well, I, I think that the ultimate difference between one that's that's retired versus a, versus a couple is. Um, you're kind of discriminated to some degree um, by the government because um, you can't split income, income you yeah. can't do certain things, and you have different different planning needs and different horizons because you don't have somebody to lean on if if um, you have a health issue or or a health problem. You don't have um, the ability to to income split. You don't have the ability to um, take care of certain things. You don't need necessarily the estate um, planning that you would have. Um, by somebody else, so you or don't may have not a, have the opportunity for or, estate planning. That right? is correct, because there's a higher sensitivity to the assets supporting your lifestyle. Yeah, and the big thing is, is that with today's day and age, um, with great divorce um, on the rise, mm -hmm. um, and um, some people deciding to marry or not to get married. Yep. Um, um, it does create some financial planning opportunities in looking at how can I best pensionize that asset that you and I and Faisal uh, talk so deeply about. Well, I, yeah, I think I, you, you know when you brought that article forward, I thought it was it was interesting. We perhaps don't do justice to um, you know those of our listeners that are single and addressing some of their specific needs, right, mm -hmm. and the specific risks you have as a as a single in retirement versus versus a couple. And I think that we'll have to uh, maybe organize some uh, some content around that because it is important to, to note, like as a, as our health bucket, as an example, if you're a single and you get sick, mm -hmm. right. Um, that's a different financial, never mind lifestyle, but a different financial proposition than it is if you have a spouse that can help uh, in in terms of taking care of you. Well, and and when you look at uh, you know different options, or you know, I, I hate to use the word product because that's what it is, but but um, single people may not necessarily need life insurance, but with the health concern, right. they may very well need some type of disability insurance. Or some type of long-term care insurance that, or a critical they, illness or, insurance, right? Exactly, or something of that nature that they simply may not need if they were they were in a in a relationship. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that um, I think that is an it's an interesting awareness point of view, right? Yes. Um, and I think you touched on something important. There is a growing trend uh, towards more and more singles in retirement for all the reasons you talked about, not the least of which is this notion of gray divorce. And that that sort of fifty plus um, once the kids leave home uh, divorce segment is unfortunately the fastest growing segment um, of the divorcing population. So we know that that trend is accelerating you know, towards singles in retirement, not decelerating. It is. Um, and there's some other factors as well. But let's go down that trend. Uh, that trend is accelerating. And there is, there's, and people don't recognize that if they were to move into a divorce situation um, as they get close to or enter retirement, that things will be drastically different than they are today. Right. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reason for it, not just social systems and, and, and payments, but, but what needs to be saved for? What needs to be mm-hmm. done for Everything about that changes. And the taxation impact, as you said, is different for a single versus... Okay. Um, Interesting. I think we'll have to pursue that a little bit more. I do want to save a little bit of time in this segment to talk about markets um, this week. I found it was, uh, again, another interesting week of lots of noise in the markets, and the market's really trying to digest what the heck is going on and then uh, pick a direction. Now, we've got a bunch of competing forces, I find, uh, that are very interesting this week. We've We've had a very strong first quarter earnings season so far on the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. I don't know quite where we're going to end up in terms of earnings growth year over year when we compare quarter one this year to quarter uh, quarter one last year, but it's running somewhere around a 25% increase. Now, some of that, of course, is the recent tax changes that have been enacted in the United States. But even when I look at earnings in Europe, up almost 15%. Uh, let's call it to uh, to Thursday this past week. That would be the most current data I'm referring to. Um, you know, earnings globally look look good. So on the one hand, you go, wow, equity markets are down, but earnings are coming in very strong. That's a bit weird. And you think about some of the other issues that we've been talking about. We're talking about, uh, obviously, global trade war, yes. specifically starting between China and the U.S. So we had a, a, China, uh, sorry, a U.S. delegation in China uh, to have conversations about how to reduce the trade deficit with China. That's creating uncertainty, right? We've got Iranian sanctions, uh, potentially the Iranian deal being uh, backed out of by the United States. That's going to hit us next week. So oil prices have been supported. Um, we've got reasonably good jobs numbers coming in from the U.S. So we've got all of this noise. I, I'm, I'm, well, and I, I would characterize it exactly that yeah. as noise um, because we're, we're seeing all of this these things, but they they haven't changed what the stock market's doing. We're still seeing earnings increase. We're still seeing benefit in the stock market. We're still seeing all these these pieces, um, and nothing is suggesting to me. And I don't know about you, Dave, but it's suggesting to me when I look at the scoreboard, um, is there something that's got a you know a look at it red, green, or yellow light? Um, yep. And I'm not seeing any yellows, and I'm certainly not seeing any reds, which suggests to me that I'm hopeful that that uh, 2018 will still mm-hmm. come in okay. It does appear from an economic scoreboard perspective or dashboard perspective, there's lots of green, maybe um, you know a flicker of, of yellow around the inflationary um, uh, front. Uh, market certainly being concerned about that. We did see U.S. Treasury yields pushing higher. So there is a very, very uh, active debate uh, by way of bulls and bears, both in the fixed income market, mm-hmm. speculating on interest rates and inflation, and, and in the equity markets as well, uh, about what's you know the direction for the last half of this year. So... Uh, lots of conversation around that. Many people confused. I want to go back to earnings for just a second. Let's strip out some of the macroeconomic noise we talked about. Uh, one of the theses that we had last year, but it was likely playing out this year, was that as interest rates move higher, uh, these earnings 
have to start justifying the lofty valuations. So when we're talking about 25% earnings growth and equity markets that are flat to slightly negative, I think investors have to realize that either some of that was dragged into last year's number, mm -hmm. right, priced in, sort of uh, uh, early in, or um, you know, valuations are going to have to come down, which means the, the earnings that we're getting right now are just slowly working down the price earnings multiples that are, are quite rich. They are quite rich right, right? now. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting year, and it's going to I think it'll be a confusing year for investors as to where to position for the reasons we've talked about, but also the results that they're going to expect to get. They might be different from if you're not thinking through this. Different uh, uh, the risk return characters might be different from the economics that we're talking about. So the investment portfolio, the thesis, the the way you're positioning um, has to take that into account. And make sure you're clear on on what it is, you know, the result that you think you're going to get for the investment thesis you're putting forward. Well, and with that thesis, you have to make sure that you're actually going to carry it through, and no matter what happens. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, make adjustments, I suppose, as the the data changes. But the noise, mm -hmm. the the trick is with the noise, right? You've got that's to strip right. out all that noise. And I don't think it's ever been noisier since you know the beginning. I can't of my remember noise as much as we have, but you know, politically, we're seeing a lot of noise, and it's being driven heavily by uh, by the Trump administration, and 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 that's not a surprise. Yeah, no, um, for sure. But. It still feels, and people still talk to us on a day-to-day -day basis about that. And he's been in, in office how long now? Well, since November. What does that give us so, now? But call it, call it Six 18 months, months? Seven months? 18 months. Oh, I'm sorry, 18 months. Yeah, yeah uh, November 16, yeah. yeah. Uh, Midterm November, uh, mid elections coming up this year. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if the noise uh, is continues until that point and subsides after that. This is going to be an interesting year. I know you're all feeling it, and academically it makes it very interesting. But we have to end the conversation there. Before we sign off on this particular segment, I want to remind everybody that we're going to try to address some of this confusion. How do you position or how do you bulletproof your retirement and the, the, the wealth that you have um, you've accumulated over time to support that lifestyle? We're doing that on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Give us a call to register for that. At 966-8400, that's 966-8400, or you can go to morethanmoneyradio.com and you can register there. All right, stick around after the break because we're going to talk about how an expanded CPP could actually cost Canada. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here on More Than Money and 770 CHQR. Uh, you're here with Dave Nofazel today. We're going to talk about CPP again, but maybe a little different perspective here. So uh, we're looking at some proposed increases to CPP payments, um, and we've talked about that on previous shows, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea from an investment perspective. Um, but what does it mean to the Canadian economy? Could it actually affect the Canadian economy, investment uh, in the Canadian economy and Canadian business? And we're going to explore that a little bit. Uh, Taylor Jackson is joining us today from the Fraser Institute, uh, a recent article on that particular topic. And first of all, Taylor, thanks for taking some time with us today. Yes, thank you for having me on. So we were exploring, or you were in this, uh, in this research, uh, we're exploring the you know the effects of an an addition in terms of money flowing into the CPP from people like you and me and and employers and you uh, you came up with some interesting uh, thoughts and conclusions. Let's talk just from a high level. Give me your your concerns about what this may do to the Canadian economy. Well, of course. So beginning next year, Canadian workers are going to start paying more uh, into the Canada Pension Plan, and this is going to go on uh, increasing the the payments that Canadian workers are making for a number of years. 
And as Canadians are contributing more to the Canada Pension Plan, one of the unintended consequences of this is that there will be a reduction in the money available for investment in Canada. And we estimate that uh, the reduction in this investment by 2030 could be as high as $114 billion. And of course, this reduction in investment in the Canadian economy or the funds available for investment in the Canadian economy will mean that there's less money available to finance entrepreneurship, less money to expand existing businesses, and less money for firms to invest in new machines and technologies. Okay. So there's, a, I mean, I guess there's a couple of angles um, that we can play there. I know in the article and the research uh, you cited some some interesting statistics in terms of if the money were to land in the hands of Canadians, where would they invest it? Versus if it's in the hands of the uh, the investment board for the CPP, where do they invest it? So maybe just give us uh, give listeners a little clarification about how the CPP is invested versus what traditional Canadian portfolios look like, and then we'll take the conversation from there. Certainly. So so we'll take a step back even a bit further uh, to get a sense of, of why this money is going to be coming out of the Canadian economy and going elsewhere. And there's really two reasons for this that work together. The first reason is that, as we've seen in the past when the CPP has been expanded, as Canadian workers are forced to contribute more to the CPP, they're going to respond by reducing their investments in their private savings vehicles like TFSAs, RRSPs, or mutual funds. And what we saw in the past when there was the last major CPP uh, expansion in the late 90s, early 2000s, was that for each dollar that workers had to contribute to the CPP, they reduced their private savings by about 90 cents. So that's the first thing that we're going to see. And then the second thing that works with that is the location of investments uh, between households and where the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, uh, the fund that manages the, the CPP's investments, where they sort of invest their assets. So if you look at Canadian households, it's about 80% of their assets are invested domestically within Canada. Now you switch over to the CPPIB and it's about 80% of the CPP's assets are invested outside of Canada in foreign markets. So what we're going to get is we're going to get a situation where Canadians reduce their private savings that would have been invested within Canada, and instead this money goes to the CPPIB that's going to be invested elsewhere. And that's why we're going to see this reduction in funds available in Canada. So let me play devil's advocate on that point for just a minute, because you could argue uh, on the other side of that that the CPPIB's role is not necessarily venture capital um, and you know funding Canadian corporations if those aren't the best investments to be made on behalf of uh, you know Canadians' pension. Um, so what? How do you how how do we balance? I guess this need for uh, continued like reinvestment in our own country, but this this uh, you know the, the the other side of the equation is that we we've, we've got to get the best returns that we can. We have a mandate to maximize uh, that return for the you know the the pensioner so i think i certainly agree with with what you said there and we're certainly not saying that the cppib or the government should come in and say that there should be a domestic investment requirement for the cppib indeed they should uh, pursue the investment strategy that maximizes their risk adjusted returns and if those are outside of canada 
that's what they should be doing. But what Canadian governments need to recognize is that one of the unintended consequences of this uh, CPP expansion will be lower investment in Canada. And this is also coming at a time when we're seeing business investment is falling, foreign direct investment in Canada is falling. We're hearing a lot from particularly energy firms that Canada is not the place to invest anymore. So governments need to look at this situation and encourage policies that can help spur investment uh, given that the CPP expansion is going to uh, sort of compound this reduction investments. And there's a lot of things that governments can do. You know, they can look at reducing uh, marginal tax rates on new investment would be a, a great step for governments to take. Um, they could also look at reducing capital gains taxes. There's a wealth of research out there that shows that capital gains taxes uh, reduce investment and particularly will reduce the financing available for entrepreneurship. Yep. So reform in that area could help. Uh, spur investment and kind of counteract this uh, this negative effect that we're going to see from the CPP expansion. You know, I, I think you're right, and I th- thank you for touching on an important point. I, I think when you ask yourself the question, well, why is it that the CPPIB has to go outside of Canada for investment? And then if we look at the, you know, if you look at the validity of the investments, um, maybe there's some structural problems within Canada that has foreign you know, capital fleeing our country, not from an investment perspective. So I, I think that, that you're correct. I think we need to look structurally at, at our, our tax situation. Um, how do we make ourselves, not just tax, but how do we make ourselves competitive to attract foreign capital when competing against you know, uh, the U.S., when competing against the EU? Because money can go to any of these places. Um, and the CPPIB, from an, as you said, a risk-adjusted rate of return basis, sees much greater opportunity outside of Canada than they do inside of Canada as a result of that. So I think you've, you've raised a couple of really interesting points here. Now, how do we find a balance between the two? Well, certainly, uh, as we argue in the report, the tax system is one thing that has to be looked at, particularly given recent tax changes in the United States that have really made the U.S. more attractive to investment than Canada. So that's one thing that we need to be looking at. But we've got to be looking at also the broader message that governments are sending uh, to investors about whether Canada's open for business or not. I mean, I think the the Trans Mountain Pipeline debate is a great example. It's not sending a great signal that Canada can't really do much on these major infrastructure projects. So you take signals like that, you take some of the uncertainty in regulatory environments across Canada, as well as uh, tax competitiveness issues, and this is where you know you start to piece together some of the reasons that uh, perhaps Canada isn't looking that attractive to investment. Yeah, I think uh, we maybe leave it there. That's a terrific point. Uh, we'll continue to talk about the CPP uh, and the various uh, you know things that it affects. There are always unintended consequences. Uh, I thank you guys for writing articles and keeping us all abreast on this, and we'll we'll continue to have conversation about it. I appreciate you joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. Been joined by Taylor Jackson of the Fraser Institute talking a little bit about the unintended consequences of this increase in CPP payments and not typical to the kind of conversation that we have um, about, uh, about that CPP benefit to, uh, to Canadian pensioners. Anyways, we are going to talk about pensionizing your assets. So for those of you that are transitioning to or already living in retirement, uh, CPP is uh, likely part of the equation. But if your lifestyle needs exceed 
what the CPP and OAS provide to you, and you don't have a defined benefit pension plan, a private from, uh, from a company, then what that means is you have to rely on your savings to fund the gap, the lifestyle gap there. And we're going to talk about that, how to do it, how best to position from a tax perspective, and how best to protect yourself for a very long, healthy retirement. And you want to join us for that on May 29th at 7 o'clock. It's a one-hour presentation. We'll be at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits, and we'd love to have you join us. Now, to do that, you need to register. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. You can register also online by going more than, uh, more than com. We'd love to see you there. But stick around after the break because we're going to be hearing about whether having an accountant prepare your taxes protects you if a mistake is made on your return. You might be interested in the, uh, in the results. Here on 770CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here on More Than Money with Dave. No Faisal today, um, but we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about taxes. One of Faisal's um, uh, biggest pet peeves and, and most passionate topics. Now we're going to talk to Jamie Golenbeck, who's the managing director, tax and estate planning with CIBC Financial Planning and Advice. Jamie's been a regular recurring guest of ours, and uh, we spoke with Jamie not too long ago, just making sure that everybody was ready, you know, when per, per, before providing their uh, most recent taxes. But now that we're actually through tax season, I want to talk a little bit about uh, blind faith in your tax preparers. So the question is, if you're um, if you have your taxes prepared by an accountant or somebody other than yourself. Uh, who's responsible for the accuracy of what you report? Well, to answer that question, we're going to ask Jamie. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about this. I'm not a tax guy. I go out and I have somebody prepare it for me. And let's say there's a mistake made on the taxes. First of all, who's actually responsible for that? Well, I think if it's actually a mistake that the accountant made, that they'd be responsible. I mean, ultimately, they would have you know, insurance, hopefully, to cover something like that. So if they actually make a real mistake, um, you know, in, in a, like a mistake, like in terms of calculations or doing something wrong, uh, then they're responsible. On the other hand, if you uh, actually do something that you know to be untrue, like, for example, you omit income mm-hmm. or you're claiming expenses or there are expenses claimed on the return and you sign the return and mail it in or net file it, but you haven't reviewed it, then you are actually on the hook. So in other words, you can't just sort of blindly rely on your tax preparer without reviewing your return. You're ultimately responsible for everything in it. If the tax preparer made a mistake based on information you gave him or her, that's another story. But here we're really talking about the opportunity to review your return, know what's in your return, make sure all your income's there, make sure all the expenses and donations are legitimate. You're responsible for that. You cannot later on put the blame on the accountant should the CRA catch you and then hit you with a gross negligence penalty. Let's just talk about that because that can be quite significant. It's significant because the gross negligence penalty is equal to 50% of the tax that you tried to avoid. Mm -hmm. So as recent cases have shown, even if you don't get away with it, in other words, you're claiming expenses that never occurred. They're fictional. You've made them up. You don't have the necessary backup. Even if the CRA says, you know what, we don't believe you, we're disallowing them, just because you tried to do it, that is considered to be gross negligence. The penalty is 50% of the tax that you tried to avoid. So if you claim $10,000 of expenses and tried to save 
you know, 48% on that, so $4,800 of tax. Uh, you claim the expenses. Your expenses are denied. You have to pay back the $4,800 of tax that you thought you were getting. The penalty is another $2,400 on top of that. So you've got to be very careful here when you file your return. Well, and it, and it seems to me that the this pivots on this notion of whether you have knowingly um, you know, provided information in this particular case versus just simply making a mistake. So if somebody, let me ask you a question. If somebody was um, uh, thought they, so if you're preparing your taxes yourself, there's a bigger risk here, I would assume, because if you think these are deductible expenses, you may get yourself into a position where you have to defend yourself. You can correct me if I'm wrong, versus using an accountant that should be able to ask or at least guide you in the right direction, ask, inquire about these expenses. What do you say about that? Well, I think it really depends on the type of accountant or tax preparer that you're doing. If you say, here are my expenses, deduct them, then you can't lay blame on the accountant for questioning you know, whether or not these are legitimate expenses. So you have to be responsible for what's in your return. I don't think you can blame that on the accountant. So uh, it depends on what level. If you're asking for the accountant's advice, do you think these expenses are okay? Mm-hmm. Then obviously the accountant would take some responsibility. But at the end of the day, if the accountant is saying, you know, give me all your expenses and you give them the expenses, then, you know, depending on the level of service that you're getting, uh, you know, if the accountant knows right away there's something wrong here, the accountant should be hesitant about preparing your return in the first place. That's professional responsibility. And, of course, we have all kinds of accountants. We have people that are licensed to practice accountancy in the provinces. Then we have tax preparers that are just people that are very highly skilled in the preparation of returns but don't have that professional sort of responsibility as in terms of, uh, you know, the professional associations, et cetera. So you hope everyone's honest. You hope everyone's doing it correctly. Uh, but at the end of the day, you are responsible for what's in your return. You are responsible for giving the receipts that are appropriate to your accountant because in many cases they don't know. Right. The taxpayer doesn't know what's legitimate. That's fair. Um, so. Generally speaking, I would say uh, most Canadians likely not savvy in terms of preparing their own taxes, but I would say there's lots right. of Canadians that do prepare their own taxes. What advice do you do you have to them to make sure that they're not running afoul or creating problems? Well, I think at the end of the day, you've got to make sure you understand the taxes. If you're really going to do it on your own, very few people actually do it on their own these days. Um, you know, if you have a simple return, you just have like a, you know, a T4, you're an employee, and maybe you've got an RSP deduction, a little bit of income, then, you know, you're fine. But when people have rental properties, when people are self-employed, it's getting far more complicated. Most people will end up hiring somebody else. So my advice is that even if you are doing it on your own, sometimes it's a good idea to get a second opinion from a tax professional. You know, pay them a few hundred dollars, sit down with an hour, say, here, I've done my own return, review it for me. Any ideas? Any tax-saving tips for next year? In almost every scenario, a good accountant or a good tax preparer will come up with something that you probably haven't thought of. Hey, you forgot to claim this deduction. Most people in your scenario are claiming something as simple as their group health plans. In other words, if you have a group health and medical uh, plan at your office, uh, are you paying for part of it? And if so, those are valid medical expenses. Hey, when I add that to all my other expenses, I'm over the limit, and now I can start deducting medical. So something as simple as that tip is actually often forgotten by the average person. And uh, and that's where an accountant can add tremendous value. So the, the wounds are still fresh from the tax season. Maybe it's a good time to strike with this because um, – to your point that you just made, I think it's a good segue. Uh, perhaps we finish off the segment with just people thinking about 
today, what can they be doing to uh, to maximize the deductions that they get? How do you start preparing today, Jamie, for next year's tax return? Well, there's a few things you can do. you got to remember, when you're filing a return, it's too late to do very much. I mean, you're basically reporting on what happened last year. Yep. Uh, what you're doing right now, though, is getting ready for 2018. So, again, you should already have a tax file set up, either a physical one or an electronic folder. If you're making donations, you're sponsoring someone for a marathon this weekend, things like that. Uh, you know, keeping the receipts all organized so that all your stuff is in the right place. Every time you, if you have business expenses, you're taking someone out for lunch or dinner, uh, for a business expense, write who you took out and the purpose of the meeting. If you're driving your car for work, keep the kilometers, keep the log, uh, keep it electronically, take a picture with your camera of your odometer, you know, things like that on your phone uh, where you can keep good records. So, uh, and then most importantly, I would say if you got, if you just uh, have received a significant tax refund, now I'm talking about a few hundred dollars, but if you received a few thousand dollars in terms of a tax refund, a question, why are you getting a refund? And in many cases, perhaps your employer is deducting too much tax at source. So what you can do is apply right now to the CRA uh, to take into account things like RSP deductions, charitable donations, child care expenses, to reduce the amount of tax at source and ultimately get your refund throughout the year through higher uh, payroll uh, rather than waiting till next April and getting your refund in one lump sum. Great advice. We have to leave it there. I want to thank you for joining us today, Jamie. Anytime. My pleasure. Thank you. We've been joined by Jamie Golenbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC Financial Planning and Advice. And uh, proper structure uh, uh, around tax uh, and advice around tax is always important. None of us live on pre-tax income. We live on post-tax, after-tax income. We're going to talk about that at our upcoming seminar, how best to position and take advantage of um, uh, of the tax code to your advantage. Make sure you're living, you have the most amount of after-tax income possible on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Give us a call at 966-8400 to register for that and stick around after the break because we're going to talk to retirement transition or talk about retirement transition with somebody who's not just an author and expert on it, but going through it right now. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with uh, Dave Popwich and More Than Money on New, uh, CHQR uh, 770. Uh, no Faisal today. We're going to uh, finish off the show strong, though, and uh, talk to Jonathan Chevro. So uh, Jonathan's been a regular recurring guest uh, for a number of years on our show and is a, 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 an authority and a writer and an author on the topic of finance, uh, financial independence, and now retirement. So it's been a, a wonderful um, uh, history to follow with uh, Jonathan as an experience uh, both personal and as a uh, as a writer about this, but Jonathan is transitioning into retirement himself, and I often find it's fun to talk to people who are going through the retirement. There's different phases of retirement. There's the honeymoon period, the settling in period. You've got you know the period where you get older, but it often brings it to life. And so, Jonathan, first of all, I want to welcome you to the show and thank you for taking some time to spend talking a little bit about your experience. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess I, I wrote about it in the Financial Post earlier this week. I got quite yeah. a few comments from other people. I, I was saying that I turned 65. I actually turned 65 early in April, uh, but I had a hockey tournament that weekend. So instead of having our 65th birthday party then, we uh, decided to schedule it uh, right after our, my first OES check, old age security check, arrives yeah. late in May. So uh, that Saturday we'll be uh, having a kind of a celebration. And a lot of these people have either friends who are 
just turned 65 themselves. As you may know, every day, 1,100 Canadian yeah. baby boomers uh, turn 65. And I think North America-wise, 10,000 every day are retiring. So uh, our numbers are legion, as I'm finding from my emails and hundred percent. And, and uh, the title of your uh, of your article caught my attention. I thought it's great. I mean, you have always got great titles, but it ain't no party like an OAS party. So I thought, oh, <laughs> we got to dig into that a little bit. So let's just talk about um, how is retirement going? Tell me a bit about the experience leading up to and sort of this transition into retirement. Well, yeah, you could say I'm a miserably a miserable example because I'm still working probably yeah. as hard as you, Dave. But yeah. <laughs> that is some semblance of a forty hour week. Uh, but it's what I call the victory lap, you know, with the book Victory Lap Retirement that I wrote with Mike Drack. Um, one of the things in there I talk about, which I think is relevant, is something called the glide path to retirement. What I'm saying is, while there are a few baby boomers who may get the golden watch at 65 and walk out the door Friday with their defined benefit pension on Monday morning, book their first tea time, I think for most baby boomers, it's going to be a lot more gradual process. And my analogy is air flights. Uh, if you're flying to Toronto, you don't expect a pilot, as soon as he gets above Pearson, to suddenly to launch a vertical drop to land. No. <laughs> what happens? Around Michigan and Chicago, like hundreds of miles away, he starts to gradually descend and lower the vehicle, right? So you're going from 30,000 feet to 20 to 10 to, and then finally you land, hopefully, smoothly. So that's what I look at retirement as. You, you're, we're, I'm gradually phasing out a bit of work here and there, gradually upping the uh, leisure, and that way you don't have this shock of, of feeling insignificant or even worse, bored, which is what can happen. It's something we call in the book sudden retirement syndrome. Uh, so I don't really envy somebody who goes from full tilt boogie 100% work mode to the next day, you know, doing nothing but watching Netflix and sleeping in. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you actually position it that way because when we when we say the word retirement, people often in, you know, associate that with exactly what you've said. I wake up on Monday morning and there's nothing to do, like no work. I shouldn't say nothing to do. There's no uh, formal job. And the problem is if you've been used to that 40-hour work week or more, you've got a 40-hour hole in your week now that you need to plug with something. And if you're not careful uh, and plug it with nothing or the wrong things, as you said, you end up bored. We see we see depression. We see all kinds of things. So retirement is not synonymous with not working. Um, it is it is synonymous with uh, your independence, right? Your financial independence and your ability to choose pace, play, what it is you do, whatever the case may be. Well, I talk about you know working because now because you want to, not because you have to. I mean, the fact is, a lot of people have been working for thirty or forty years, the baby boomers, and it's it's a big chunk of your life. And it's not like if you subtract full time employment, those hours don't exist. You don't have to fill them. You still have to fill twenty four hours a day. And if, if your identity was wrapped up in the fact yeah. you're a vice president somewhere, and you're an important person, and you know employees come and uh, look for you guidance. I mean, Riley Moyens. I, I talked to a lot of other authors who written books about this. I wrote one in Money Sets the other day, Riley Moyne's book, The Four Phases of Retirement. And the first phase is basically the vacation. Everything it's a permanent vacation. But rapidly it's followed by this feeling of feeling insignificant. You're no longer important. And then what he then he says they go through trial and error. You try to launch a little few things, and then you find some purpose and meaning again. Um, so I talk about the, you find purpose and meaning in, in our book, um, but it's based on um, – uh, you know, essentially, it's semi-retirement. It's um, an encore career, 
self-employment, you know, reinventing yourself. Uh, ideally, you're going to do activities that allow you to issue an invoice to different clients, but it, it could just take the form of charity and philanthropic mm-hmm. work and, you know, even going overseas and helping people. It's up to you, really. Yeah. You mentioned, we were talking off air, and you mentioned that you had lots of uh, positive feedback and emails on the article. I'm, I'm curious, again, personalizing this a little bit, uh, you're sharing a bit about your experience going through that. What kind of reaction did you get from, you know, from the article and sharing this transition that you're going through? Well, a lot of them are saying um, that they're, you know, I'm 66, I'm 67, and I'm just like you. I'm sort of slowing down a bit, but I haven't completely stopped. And, and, and then some thinking, are, you know, they get into technical issues like should I take old age security mm-hmm. at 65 or wait to 70? Should I take CPP at 60 or wait? And as you know, uh, basically the longer you can wait, the better. I mean, CPP is uh, 42% better at 70, higher benefits than if you took it at 65. Uh, OAS is 36% better. But my reasons for taking OAS and not CPP at 65 are that I figure eventually I'm going to have a big RSP turns into a RIF with forced taxable withdrawal. At that point, I could get subject to clawback, so I might as well grab five years of free money while I can. CPP doesn't operate that way. There are no CPP clawbacks. It'll just be taxable income. So in my case, I'm going to wait, if I can, till 70 to get that CPP that's 42% better. But OAS is a little bit different. It's a bird in the hand, and I'm taking the bird. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Aside from the technical stuff, I'm curious about other comments, and particularly around this notion um, I, I'm curious around people's comments when they transition to retirement. So there seems to me still, when talking to clients, um, there there seems to be a pressure or a stigma attached to continuing to work after retirement. Like this is some kind of a failure versus, um, you know, being engaged in something you enjoy doing at a pace that you enjoy doing it. To what extent did you get any feedback or commentary around that? Well, we talk about, you know, you, 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 are you retiring from something? Something. Right. I mean, retirement should be, you know, you're, you're the, the cessation of some painful activity you hated for 10 years, 20 years and endured. You should be retiring to something. Like, it really re- requires planning your victory lap, even while, ideally, you're still employed. I mean, it doesn't mean you may not necessarily go to your boss and say, hey, boss, six months from now, I'm out of here, thank goodness. But you might you might want to cultivate a sort of thing like, hey, can you be my first client? Instead of being a salaried employee, I just want to go. To, I was talking to an author, uh, Howard Pell. He wrote a book called Retire Fit, Fit and Fit, and he did that exactly with his employer. He went down a three day week, and uh, and so as you know, I mean, what what is self employment but having more than one client? A job, a traditional salaried job, is just one client, which is actually when you think about it, kind of insecure. <laughs> Isn't it more secure to have and more varied to have multiple clients? So start with your employer, plan for your victory lap, ideally convert your employer from an employer to a client, and then go pick up two and see three and four clients, other clients. Yeah, and, you really, really enjoy doing nothing. Yeah, exactly. You've got to fill the gap. I mean, I, I think you've, you've touched on something, and we've talked about this lots on the show, is you can't, you, as you said, you can't retire to nothing, right? I mean, the TV is not a retirement plan. Uh, you will become bored, and often that leads to depression. There's other things. So it's, this is quite serious And when you say you need to retire to something. The retirement's not the end of the game, right? This, it's, a, it's, it's a stop in the, you know, in the, uh, in the overall uh, journey that you're taking, and I think some thought needs to be given to that. Any surprises for you? So relative to what you thought of retirement, then when you considered yourself in retirement, you know, did anything surprise you? You know, I had a number of things I thought I was going to do. It was the moment I turned 65, I was going to rediscover playing bridge and internet bridge, which I was, was quite passionate about when I had a job. 
But I guess I, since I've been self-employed the last four years, I've been afraid to play Internet Bridge sort of in Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 time, because that would mean I was retired and, uh, like, don't I have something better to do? So I'm surprised I haven't yet re-embraced that. All I do is I read the Bridge column in the paper every day in the National Post. Um, similarly, I was going to uh, – I think I had a plan to, uh, you know, start – writing songs or something and uh, as of April 6th when I turned 65. Yeah, well, I have yet to do that either. So I guess the surprise is you just, I mean, as I said at the end of the Financial Post article, the one you mentioned with the OES headline, yeah. uh, I, I ran into this guy the day, I, I, just a couple of weeks after I turned 65, I dealt with him in self-employment and I said, gee, you know, I just I turned 65, but I haven't really, you know, I don't feel any different. Uh, I haven't really stopped working, and he just smiled at me and said, it's just a number, which yeah. is actually true. I mean, yeah, yeah now, now I get a little bit of more money comes in from OAS and other sources. So gradually, it goes back to the, um, the glide path. You gradually add some streams of income, pensions, annuities, investment income, go OAS, and, and, and every time you do that, you can kind of uh, work a little less hard. And that's my plan. But so far, I guess I'm surprised that I, I if, if the whole point is to do nothing, I, I guess I'm not doing a very good job. <laughs> You're failing. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, in that article, you also cited uh, President Trump. Now, that's a bit of a polarizing personality, but, uh, but not from a political perspective, but from an age perspective. And here's a guy at age 72 that decided he just might ramp it up to, I don't know, as full speed as you can possibly go, taking the office of president of the United States. So I think it's a, it, it is a, an interesting thought exercise for people that are you know, approaching or even living in retirement, but certainly planning for it, to think a little bit about what you're going to fill that time with. What is going to keep you engaged or that positive stress, as I call it, to get you out of bed in the morning? Because if you don't have that, something, right, to uh, to motivate you that uh, that has your interest, writing songs or writing books, whatever the case may be, then you're going to run, you're going to get yourself in a whole heap of problems uh, in a relatively short period of time. And we see that manifest itself in many ways. So I want to thank you, Jonathan. We're running out of time here, but for, for staying on top of this, sharing your personal experience, uh, and maybe in 10 seconds or less, the number one tip you would give to somebody who's, who's approaching this period of retirement. What is it? Well, I guess you'd have to buy the book, Victory Act Retirement, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, go to Financial Independence Hub, and maybe join our new Facebook group I mentioned also in the post uh, called Younger Next Year 2018. The whole point was that uh, it's not just about money. Uh, once you're semi-retired, you have more time to, uh, to worry about your physical fitness and even nutrition. So those are the three tips I'd be giving you, Dave. Super good. Jonathan, thanks again for your time. appreciate you joining us. Anytime, Dave. Jonathan Chevro is the founder of Financial Independence Hub. He's also co-author of Victory Lap Retirement and a regular recurring guest on our show. Before we wrap up this show, I want to remind everybody that we're going to talk about this process of retirement, not just the money side, but the lifestyle side and how it all connects together. We're doing that at our upcoming seminar, which is Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine, Spirits and Beer. Uh, to join us for that, you've got to register. Give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can go on to uh, morethemoneyradio.com. And a reminder of any of the segments that we covered today in the past, they're all archived there uh, at morethemoneyradio.com. Or you can now have them delivered directly to you in podcast form by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.